Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for coming. Glad to see you all. Very proud of you all for braving the weather. I know in Los Angeles that's a challenge. But you should be hardened now by what I read was the coldest February in the history of Los Angeles. So good for you, and thank you for coming out to see an opera. Um, most of you have never seen. How many who have never seen Clemenza di Tito? Excellent. Um, I will not ask if anybody's seen it at LA Opera because it is a it is a first at LA Opera. The, we have never produced this, and it's part of our idea to get to try to get to as many of those masterpieces that we've never, where we've never been, and this is one of them. If anybody happens to know if, if, if Clemenza di Tito has ever been produced in Los Angeles, please let me know, send me an email, but there, nobody, there is no living person who remembers it. That's all I can tell you so far. <laughs> now, before I start, I've been given instructions to tell you about this behind me, okay? It's, these are three winning entries of our Clemency of Titus College Art Contests. It's sponsored by Grow at Annenberg and the Annenberg Foundation. We received 47 entries from students at 14 Southern, Southern California colleges who created their artistic vision of this production. The winning artwork is featured on the cover of our performance magazine, and we are truly delighted that so many students are discovering opera through this program. So please give it a round of applause if you will. So, uh, the, uh, I usually get up here and tell you, well, you know, I've conducted this piece here, or this how many times, or when I did this last, and blah, blah, blah. This time, I'm coming up uh, once again. Never did it. This is the last major piece of Mozart that I have never conducted. So you can imagine what an emotion this is for me tonight. Um, I'm cl close to 200 performances uh, of Mozart operas in my lifetime. I've done all the choral works. I've done the last 15 symphonies multiple times. I've done 35 of the almost 40 concertos to do. I don't have much to go, much further to go with Mozart, what I haven't done, but Clemenza di Tito is it, and it's the biggest one. And so tonight is a very special night for me as well. Now, uh, thank you. I'm going to tell you the story of the fall of 1791. You know some of it. Um, uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, whom, uh, of course, I don't, does not need any introduction. Uh, these are the September to, you know, to December of 1791 are the last three months of his life. Now, many people know uh, Mozart through Amadeus, the film, which has done a great thing for Mozart and for all of us, has made Mozart popular. And so we can actually, uh, actually produce a lot of things. And, and people actually know, not music lovers, music lovers all know, knew Mozart to begin with, but many people who don't follow music know who he is. So um, it's a very creative um, piece. Uh, Peter, uh, Peter Schaffer, who wrote the play. I saw the play on Broadway many years ago. And um, it's a fanciful interpretation of Mozart's uh, life, or at least his personality. But a lot of it is historical. But a lot of it isn't. First of all, I doubt he had that red hair like that. Very much doubt that. Um, the idea that he was a sort of crazy bumpkin who uh, didn't know how to behave, I've, I don't think that that's true at all. Uh, some of the uh, misbehavior is based on something that had a 
just the tiniest grain of truth. He used to write, like to write letters to his sister and she to him with a lot of scatological humor. In them. And so based on that, they said, you see, Mozart was actually quite, you know, vulgar and all that. Now, I don't know. I didn't write scatological letters to my sisters, but I think with my brothers, we certainly used words that would be considered that way. So I don't think there's anything terribly extraordinary about children doing that. So um, the, the, uh, enjoy the movie. Uh, I love the movie, but don't believe everything you saw. By the way, um, Salieri, the composer, did not murder him, and there was no plot to murder him, and he did not die because he happened to be writing the, the, uh, the Requiem. He had rheumat uh, rheumatic inflammatory disease. He died from that, and he was not just sick at the time that he was uh, writing the Requiem. He had been ill for some months, and in fact, his wife was very concerned about him having to go to Prague to, um, to, con to supervise the premiere of the opera we're about to hear tonight. Um, the uh, Amadeus is about genius versus mediocrity, and that's the subject, and Mozart and Salieri, in a certain way, are pawns in that story. Now, 1756 to 1791, if you do a quick, quick counting, he had not uh, reached his 36th birthday. Uh, Salzburg, born Salzburg, died in Vienna. Now, this opera had been uh, kicking, no, not the opera, the libretto, the story of this opera had been kicking around for a long time. It was first written um, as a, as a, by a man named Metastasio. We've talked about him in connection with Gluck's Orpheus last year. He was probably the greatest poet slash librettist of the um, 18th century, and his works continued to be used into the 19th century. Um, this one was written in 1734. Um, it was called, no surprise, La Clemenza di Tito. And there were a, a, a total of about 45 operas that had been written on this title before Mozart wrote his opera, and a few were written even afterwards. So why was it such a popular story? Because it is a, it is a story that can be used to uh, praise a enlightened leader. And so uh, there were a lot of leaders, uh, kings, dukes, princes, who were all, of course, in power in the 18th century. This is all before the French Revolution. And they loved seeing an opera about an emperor who was exemplary in his behavior. So um, that's the reason it was so popular, and that's the reason it was, uh, it was given so many times. Now, uh, this, this particular occasion it is Leopold II, who is, not, who is being, who has now had two coronations, and he's had, about to have a third, and he's now being crowned as the King of Bavaria, and he, uh, that is taking place in Prague. Mozart gets the commission, and despite the fact that he is writing the magic flute, uh, he is flattered by the commission and desperate for commissions, and so he takes it, even, uh, even though his wife is concerned about his health. Um, so the important thing, well, there were two important features. It had to be an opera celebrating the emperor. Whether or not Tito, this, this title was Mozart's choice or the choice of the producer, we don't know uh, for sure. But it had to have two things. It had to have a great composer, and it got that, Mozart. And it had to have a role for a famous castrato named Bedini. What is a castrato? It is a gentleman who has had an operation, an anatomical operation, young enough in life that his uh, voice remains high. 
Um, the castrati, they were called, were dominant throughout the entire 18th century, um, and they had, uh, there were some stars, and this particular man was a star. Uh, so they were men with women's voices. Now, very gradually, it started going out of taste. It wasn't in taste in Paris, and then others didn't like it. And for obvious reasons, everybody was a little squeamish around, the, around Castrati. So as there were stories of men and women and their love and their great romantic stories, uh, it sort of was going out of style, but it was still in style enough for the request to come through to Mozart that he... Uh, that he write for a castrato, and so he did. Nowadays, uh, those parts are sung by women dressed up as men. And I'll get to the story shortly. There are six characters. Um, there are four female singers and two male singers, and there are uh, four male characters and two female singers. Now, if you can do the quick math, that means there are two women singing roles of male characters. We call them trouser roles because, um, well, clearly they wear trousers. Uh, so we're going to be talking about, so keep these several dates in mind. September the 6th, that is the premiere of, the, of uh, Clemenza di Tito. September 30th, this is unbelievable, the premiere of the Magic Flute. That means that three weeks basically separated the premieres of these two operas. Uh, they are very different operas, uh, but only a genius on the level of Mozart could have carried something off that. Um, in December, er, late November and early December, he was writing the Requiem. He was not writing it for himself, he was writing it for a commission. And actually he had put it off several times, but he felt he had to finish it. Um, he died on December the 5th, he did not complete the Requiem. It was, it was completed by one of his students named Zeusmeyer. Um, and if that's not enough, he wrote a great concerto, the clarinet concerto, in the month of October. So we can consider that there are four great pieces written in the months, three months, September, October, November, between the beginning of September and the beginning of December. Uh, I'm going to read you a little bit from my my uh, article, I write this, you know, it's in your program, but don't w worry about it now. Um, you can read it, as I always say, keep it by your bedside. It will, it will, you'll get, get a good night's sleep if you start reading it. Um, that's the short, you have the short version there because there's never enough space, so we put the long version on the website. If you like what, looking at websites, you can see the long version. I recommend that, but not when you want to go to sleep because everybody tells me that if you look at a screen, you stay awake. So I'm going to just read you the first uh, several paragraphs to give you a background. In 1789, now that's two years before um, this opera is written, the French populace rose up against their king and queen and brought about a revolution, eventually executing their monarchs. Thirteen years before that, the American colonies had rebelled against the British crown and established their own sovereign nation. None of this was lost on the royals across the continent of Europe, who reacted with alarm and concern. The subject of good governance, even by monarchs who claimed to rule by divine right, acquired a new urgency. The French Revolution struck especially close to the Holy Roman Emperor Leopold II. He's the man who's being coronated. This is the man for whom the opera is being written. 
because Marie Antoinette, the last French queen, was his sister. And by the way, Mozart, at the age of five, played for Marie Antoinette. She was seven. So in 1791, when Leopold was to be crowned in Prague, a celebratory opera was to be commissioned. And because one of the contemporary models of the Age of Enlightenment authority was the enlightened despot, the new opera could both flatter the new leader and subtly suggest to him an example and model for authority. The chosen opera would portray a Roman emperor, Titus by name, and by extension, a newly crowned monarch as not only a man of justice, but also of mercy. Now, uh, a little bit about Titus. Uh, Titus, um, born in the year 39. Yes, 39. That's 39 of the Christian era. Uh, we used to say 39 AD. It's now 39 of the Christian era. And um, he died in 881. He only reigned for two years, from 79 to 81. But that short reign was um, very vivid. It included the eruption of Vesuvius. Um, now that wasn't um, that wasn't uh, that wasn't in Rome, but he, of course, uh, took an attitude of compassion for the uh, victims. A three-day fire in Rome, not caused by Vesuvius, because Vesuvius is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away, and a plague, all of that in his two-year reign. Um, and he labored mightily to, uh, to uh, relieve the sufferings of the people. Now, I want to remind you that uh, an opera is not a history. Opera is not history. We went through all of this when we did Don Carlo. How many of you saw Don Carlo? Great. So you remember the discussion, all right? The characters are perhaps historical, and Titus is historical, and some of the events, which will be talked about, Vesuvius, a fire in Rome, uh, some of those things are true, and the general view of Titus as a, a kindly emperor is pretty much true. Um, but not everything else is true. Now, he had a very interesting father whose name was Vespasian, or Vespasian, uh, Vespasio in Italian. Um, he, and he's generally referred to his last name. So if you go to, you go to the online, you want to know all about Titus when you get home tonight, be careful which one you're reading about, because Vespasian is his father. He's Titus Vespasian, and um, he is just usually called Titus. Uh, you can get really confused, as I did. Uh, so Vespasian is generally known by his last name, and he was a very interesting man. Amongst other things, he constructed the Colosseum. Um, his father is still spoken about in, uh, in modern-day Italy because the word Vespasio, get this, um, is the name for a public urinal. That was not meant to be an insult to Vespasian because Vespasian started a tax for the collection and disposal of wastes. And that is how that name came to be. And to this very day, a Vespasio, well, every man knows what it is. So, um, but our Titus, you will have seen probably the Arch of Titus, L'Arco di Tito, which you'll find close to the Forum. Uh, this is still standing today. It was an arch, archway that uh, was modeled, was, from which the Arche de Triomphe was modeled in Paris. Um, it commemorates uh, 
the siege of Jerusalem. Now, uh, this is where we might start thinking Titus was a really bad guy. Titus, while his father, uh, Vespasian, was the emperor, Titus was the general of the armies who were putting down a rebellion um, in, uh, in Judea at the time, and he, there was a siege at Jerusalem, and that arch, of course, remembers what for the Romans was a triumph. Of course, for the Hebrews, it was a tragedy. Um, however, he apparently, he, Titus, apparently uh, uh, opposed both the destruction of the temple and the slaughter of the people afterwards, already a sign of his, uh, of his benevolence. Uh, he didn't succeed, unfortunately, in controlling his troops. Maybe he wasn't such a good general. I'm not sure. But uh, he's looked at, um, despite this, he's looked at kindless, kindly uh, somewhat by historians, including Eusephus, um, who is a, was a Hebrew historian. Um, the Romans respected Titus, uh, but sometimes they didn't approve of everything he was doing. And he formed a relationship while he was down there with a Jewish queen whose name was, uh, in Italian, Berenice. Uh, she was the widow of Herod uh, Agrippa II, a woman 10 years his senior, and he brought her back to Rome, and he wanted to marry her. You'll hear her referred to, and she, she is never seen because he has sent her back to uh, Judea, but she plays an important role nevertheless, and I'll tell you about that shortly. So he brought her there, wanted to marry her, and there was great, uh, there was great uh, objection to that. And, um, well, he died at 42 years old. Just uh, as a young man, he only ruled for two years. But he, was, but he was viewed, Racine and Corneille both wrote plays about him, Metastasio, of course, uh, writing that opera. So um, he has a very good reputation, and so he's a good, he is a good choice um, for, uh, I think, for an opera to celebrate a great leader. Now, it's time for me to go through the cast. Now, it's not terribly complicated on the surface. Uh, there are only six characters. Uh, but this, is a, this, opera, this story is a vestige of opera seria, that means serious opera, which is distinguished from opera buffa, which was funny opera. And for most of the century, uh, opera seria had some, uh, some rules. It was supposed to be a, it was a series of arias, one person singing. They were called da capo arias, which means go back to the beginning. The first part is sung, a, trans, uh, a second part contrasting is sung, and then the first part is sung again, and the singer could make up variations. So all the singing stars wanted their da capo arias so they could show off pretty much in the third part of that where they could make up their own, their own ornamentation. There, are, there is, by the way, a da capo aria, a real one, in this opera. Now, opera seria was sort of winding down toward the end of the century, and from a historic point of view, one person who, was, who loved the opera seria was Mozart, and he knew it well because he wrote a whole bunch of them. They're not his most famous operas. Uh, and he grew up in the era when he was very young uh, with opera seria. But in the meantime, he has uh, exploded the limitations of opera with his incredible invention. This is now an opera seria revisited, but by the man who has already written Marriage of Figaro, Don Giovanni, 
uh, Così Fantute is writing the magic flute, has written the abduction from the Seraglio and Idomeneo. In other words, he's pushed at the limits of all those operas, and he has created way beyond that. So you are going to get the fruits of that maturity and put into this, uh, what was a stale tale of a bunch of Romans who are in conflict. Now, um, there's always a lot of intrigue, and there are usually at least two couples who are in love. And of course, if you're in love and in an opera, there's all sorts of obstacles. So that we have lots of obstacles. We have two groups. Of them. And then there's you know, all the stuff, disguises, people mistaken identities, uh, people uh, hiding in trees, people overhearing. There's secrets. There's always a lot of intrigue. And that's not an accident uh, because the word uh, intrigo in Italian means intrigue, but it also means the story of an opera or a play. I can say, well, what is the intrigo? Well, I'm going to find out what the name of the story is. Now, Mozart, with the help of his librettist, whose name was Mazzola, went about slashing all sorts of ext extraneous material from the opera to give a far more uh, streamlined version um, concentrating on the important things. Mozart was very happy with his, uh, uh, with his collaboration. Would it have gone farther than it is? Yes, it would have, because, but the incredible haste. The opera is said to have been written in as little as 18 days, uh, perhaps a little bit longer, but there's no agreement about that. Uh, so they did the best they can. He wrote it in such haste that the recitatives, you know, those are the parts that the story is told, and they're very wordy, and they're accompanied by a harpsichord uh, uh, or another keyboard instrument. Uh, he didn't have time to write them, so he gave them to his student, presumably Zussmeyer, who had traveled with him, to write them. So you'll be hearing uh, the, probably the only opera that I know of, there might be others, where Mozart didn't write the recitatives. He wrote all the uh, sung music, all of the orchestra music, but he didn't write the recitatives. Um, so we have this man, Tito Vespasian. Okay, we know who he is, and we know that he was going to marry Berenice. Okay, but that's not going to happen. Now, who are the other characters, and what, what are all their relationships? Well, there are one couple who are in love. Um, the man is named Sesto, and the woman is named Vitalia. Uh, who is Sesto? He's a, he's a, uh, a young uh, patrician Roman who is close to Tito. He is a friend of Tito. Tito considers him his friend. Uh, his friend. Um, Sesto is in love with Vitalia. Who is she? She's a piece of work. She is the daughter of the uh, pre one of the previous emperors whose name was Vitellio. Now, when remember Nero who fiddled while Rome burned? Yeah. Well, he he actually committed suicide, and in the course of a little more than a year, there were four emperors who were slaughtered one after the other, until the fourth one was Vespasian, the father of our Titus, and he was he reigned. Um, for a very long time, had a long life, and he died in his bed of natural courses, which makes him almost unique in the history of Roman emperors. So she thinks she ought to be the empress because her, because her father, Vitellius, for a very brief time was the emperor. So she wants to really marry Tito. And somehow or other, I don't know if Tito had a weak moment or something or told her that he liked her, somehow she feels that he was in love with her. Um, I... 
I'm not sure she, that he was, but we do know she wants to marry him, and I don't think it's because she's in love with him. She wants to be the empress, and so she is ambitious. She's fiery. She is actually pretty wicked. She is a, uh, an intrigante. She is a plotter, and she is going to use her beloved Sesto to actually make a plot to start a fire and in the confusion in that fire to murder Titus. That's her crime. I'm not going to give you all the details because I want you to discover them, but she's, she's pretty bad. All right? So we got Sesto and Vitellia. Now on the other side, you have Agno. He's a man sung by a woman. Sesto is sung by a woman as well. Agno is... Um, is in love with a beautiful and sweet young woman named Servilia, and she is the sister uh, of Sesto. So, confused yet? Yeah, okay, let me run it through again. You've got a man and a woman who are in love, although both of them are sung by women. Sesto and Vitalia. Sesto, a patrician, Vitalia, the daughter of an ex-emperor. You've got Sesto's brother, Agno, also sung by a woman, and Servilia, who is a young, beautiful Roman. Uh, you will actually know which of the women who are singing are men because they have beards. So you will not have any trouble. You'll be fine. All right? Now, coincidentally, Agno, the man who loves, who, who is a patrician, and her, and is, uh, is, I'm uh, oh, sorry, Sesto and Servilia are brother and sister. So that means Agno wants to marry the sister of Sesto. So, okay, that's, that's the knot of characters. Um, there's only one other character, and he plays a secondary role, and he's a bass. Uh, this is a female voice heavy uh, opera. You've got four female voices, every one of them who have arias to sing and duets to sing, and you've got Tito, who's occasionally sings with the others, but often sings by himself because he's the emperor. And you have a man named Publio. Publio is a bass, and um, he is a Praetorian prefect. That's a part of, he's an elite uh, unit of the uh, imperial army that protects the emperor. In other words, he's basically a bodyguard. So once again, we've got Tito up here. Tito having given up Berenice at the insistence of the Roman people, decides he wants to marry Servilia, who is in love with Agno. So there we have another complication. So we've got Tito, who wants to marry Servilia, and Vitellia, who wants to marry Tito. So it's pretty complicated. But it'll all straighten out. You'll see. Um, he doesn't marry Servilia. Servilia does... No, I won't tell you the end. Okay, uh, you've got the overall picture. Now we're going to go to the music. All right, I brought you a lot of excerpts, and what I'm going to do is to just to start with the overture. That's meant to get your attention, as any good overture does, and you feel you can tell right away it's noble, it's majestic, it's it's martial. Why? Because we are celebrating the coronation of an emperor. It could be the first movement of any symphony. It's perfectly constructed, classical. That was our first motive, our first theme. Now there's a little connective tissue which just gets you excited. 
You remember the Rossini crescendo? This is an early example. Did Rossini write it? No, Mozart did. But Rossini sure liked that technique, right? And then we come to a sort of a stop, a halt, and we have a second theme. This is a little bit more singing. It's called a Gesangstema in German. So this is contrasting to the martial opening. This is every sonata, every symphony has this structure. And it's all celebratory. There isn't a cloud in the sky, right? And now we come back to this. Suddenly, there's a cloud. What is that? Listen carefully. There it is again. Mozart's telling us that there's going to be some pretty serious conflict. Now, the opera is, as I explained, constructed of arias, duets, trios, even a quintet, a sextet, connected by recitativi, recitatives. Those are, that's where the, you can bring that up a little bit. So you can hear. This is how the story goes forward rapidly. It's all conversation, and there's only a harpsichord. These are called secco recitative. Secco meaning dry. Dry because there's no orchestra. Now there are also recitatives with orchestra. They're called recitativo accompagnato, which means an accompanied recitative. And this is something that Mozart is really pushing because this was not the case for most serie operas. Here is an example. So you see how it works? There's a lot of words. There's a lot of suggestion of what's going on. The drum is being pushed forward. At the same time, the orchestra is participating, especially when it's a monologue, as this is, because Tito is thinking out loud. It's a little bit like Hamlet, it's a monologue. Okay. So have you got that now? Recitativo secco, dry recitative, that's with a harpsichord, and then occasionally accompagnato, recitativo accompagnato, that's accompanied, that's with the orchestra. Now this is Vitellia, and I'm going to show you that she sings a lot of coloratura, that's very fast, listen to this. That was expected of people singing opera seria. So that's Mozart writing that for a premiere on September 6th. Here he is writing for a premiere on September 30th. Yes, yes, that's the Queen of the Nights. It's the same technique. Now what I'm going to be showing you is how many close parallels there are. Clemenza di Tito, the Magic Flute, the Requiem, and even the Clarinet Concerto. There she goes. And you'll know this one as well. It is in the second act. And if you're nice, you can come back to the Magic Flute next season. Okay, now here's another interesting parallel. These are two men singing, 
believe it or not, Sesto and Agno, and they are friends. And because they are friends and they are in harmony with each other, they sing in thirds. Just as Fiordiligi and Dorabella sing in thirds in, in Cosi Fantute. Thirds, if you haven't studied music, thirds are, uh, are, uh, are sung, well, what are they? Sung, played of notes that are three notes apart in a scale. And Mozart uses them to express togetherness, harmony of soul. They can be lovers, uh, they can be sisters, as they are in Cosifantute, or they can be friends, as they are here, Sesto and Agno. Okay, here's another one. Okay, this is a march that introduces the, the court, the people, and here comes the emperor. The choice of key is significant. E flat major. The Magic Flute. You know the overture? Starts. Now, Mozart roots his operas in a key. The Marriage of Figaro is, starts in D major, and three hours later ends in D major. Don Giovanni starts in D minor, but because you don't end pieces usually in minor, it ends in D major. Cosi Fantuti is in C major. Uh, the Magic Flute pendulates between E-flat major and C major, E-flat being perhaps a symbol of the Masonic Lodge or the Masonic beliefs that Mozart held. Um, and we're going to see this relationship between E-flat and C. Um, Clemenza di Tito is rooted in C major. The overture starts in C major. Uh, the opera ends in C major. But there'll be a lot of E-flat major was clearly on Mozart's mind, and it may have been for the reasons that I just cited. So here we hear the march in E-flat major, and let's compare it with Sarastro's entrance. Same kind of thing. This happens to be in C major. This is Clarence di Tito. And this is the magic flute. This is the first chorus. Joy, joyful because they are praising the emperor. Let's do that one more time. E flat major. Clemenza di Tito. It's a similar language. The magic flute. Clemenza. This is Clemenza di Tito. This is the magic flute. Here's a lovely duet. This is Servilio and Agno, who, as you remember, are in love. 
and the same motive, but now it's the march of the priests from the second act of the magic magic flute. There they are singing in thirds because they love each other, like Dorabella and This is a famous aria, the most famous aria from this opera. Parto, parto, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. It's a structure that is classic with a slow introduction. We're going to model it on. Fiordiligi's aria from the first act of the of Osifantute. similar beginning. Then we have something very special. We have a solo clarinet. Mozart had the clarinet on his mind. By the way, the clarinet was not commonly used yet. Mozart was pushing the clarinet. You hear that? And here is. Here is the clarinet concerto, the slow movement. And this bears a remarkable resemblance to Serviglia's aria in the second act. Then there is a second section. We're still in parto parto. This goes faster. And the clarinet goes faster with her. him. That's the second part of Così Fantute, Fior di Ligi. And then there's a third part, very fast, not just fast, very fast. And, look, and now there's coloratura. Very fast. Our marvelous sesto, Elizabeth Deschamps, likes to go very fast. And you'll hear that shortly. And here's the same kind of thing in Cosi Fantute. Here's Fior di Ligi. That's required of these singers. Fast. Now here's Vitalia by Tuperus and Angry. Note for note, the magic flute. Off-stage chorus, threatening Papageno and Tamino if they don't do the proper behavior while they're under, while they're being tested. The most impressive scene is the scene of the fire and the rumor that Tito has been assassinated. It's the end of Act One. If I had to choose one masterpiece amongst many in this opera, this would be it. 
hear that. Sounds like the Queen of the Night. Sounds like the DSC from the record. of their leader. They believe him to be assassinated. He, he hasn't been, but they believe him. That's Clemenza di Tito. This is the Requiem. That jagged rhythm for a moment of drama. Closing a trio. You hear that jagged rhythm like candles. Here's Rex Tremende, part of the Dies Upside down, of course, goes the other way. same exact notes in the overture to the magic flute. The end of act one. The cadence. Just like a cadence from Zarastro's aria. The magic now I have a whole bunch of more excerpts, but you'll have to come back next time. I tell you what, next time I won't talk so long about Titus or something, and I'll let you hear that. But I just want to play you the end so you know whatever goes on in this intrigue, and there are moments of great emotion and great peril. Titus pardons everybody, all the intrigues. Uh, we talk a lot about pardon these days. Titus says, I know everything, I forgive everything, I forget everything. And by saying that, it is not just pardon which cancels the punishment for a crime. He forgives, which cancels the crime, and as such, he is a porte-parole, he is the mouthpiece of divine forgiveness, a theme that is central to Mozart's life. Thank you very much, enjoy yourself.
You've been listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.